who is speaking to us right now? Do you want to put your name on our device over here? Looks like you do. Do you want me to guess your name? Is it Lewis? Oh, what does it Charles. say? Charles. 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 <gasps> <laughs> so a story we didn't tell is that of Charles Ooh, Mortimer. Let's go crazy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Wow. Oh my gosh. So Charles. it's going really crazy. The name Charles Mortimer just came. We'll be calm. We can talk about this calmly. Hello and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In this week's bonus episode, we follow Susan Voskul Starcevich and Lisa Praxel, our neighbors at the Sacramento History Museum in Old Sacramento State Historic Park, on a paranormal investigation. Join us as we explore the more salacious and spooky stories of Old Sacramento. Due to the nature of this investigation, this podcast may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So my name is Amanda DeFazio. My name is uh, Jacob Jennerjohn. My name is Alex Clark. And we went on a wonderful paranormal investigation with the Sac History Museum. That's true. We did. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And to be honest, I didn't expect to have a paranormal experience. I thought it was going to be, you know, mostly history focused. I thought it was going to be a lot of... Uh, spooky historical stories, but I, I didn't expect much of the paranormal part. Yeah, I didn't expect anything either. I'm a, I'm a pretty big ghost uh, skeptic. I assumed we'd go in there and maybe one or two little beeps happen, I don't know, uh, something coincidental. But um, I think the experience we had was quite a bit different from that. Yeah, Alex? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm also quite the skeptic. I'm not like ghosts, schmosts. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, quite an interesting little experience. Welcome to Old Sacramento Paranormal Investigations. My name is Lisa. Um, I'm actually creator of this tour. I've been working for the Sacramento History Museum doing tours underground for 10 years, and I am an avid ghost hunter interest. I'm not a, I love going on all the tours uh, around town when I travel, so I've been on multiple uh, tours. And that's what got me interested in, we could do this here in Sacramento. We have an amazing history here. So I approached Susan and we got this tour up and running. Uh, I'm Susan, I'm the education manager at the Sacramento History Museum. And like Lisa said, she came to me with this idea and I love it. I love kind of weird things like <laughs> this. And it's a fun idea. We actually get a lot of like requests from outside people to come in and do this type of thing. But we usually, in fact, I'd say 99.99% of the time deny it just for safety reasons. We're not really sure who the people are. But if we can control the situation and control the um, information that gets out because we know that we've done our research and that with the stories that we're telling are accurate, then we thought, okay, this is something we could do. So that's kind of where the idea for the old SAC paranormal investigation <laughs> tour came from. OSPI, exactly. Right. So thank you guys for joining us. So we had you sign a waiver when you came in and yep. we just want to make sure you understand some important pieces of that waiver. Yeah. 
Yes, so I'm going to read kind of just the important things. Number one is that it's a little after six here. It's getting dark and we have turned off the lights in the museum. So as we go through, it's going to be dark. So we're going to give you guys um, some flashlights or if you want to use your phone's flashlight, that's totally fine. But just be aware of your surroundings that you're probably not super familiar with all the furniture and items that are going to be around the staircases. So, you know, just be careful with that. And then also this is a paranormal investigation. So you never know what we're going to find. We are searching for something out there, but we need to um, just be respectful of anything that we find. So be sure that we're talking to um, the spirits or whoever uh, wants to show themselves tonight. Just, you know, with respect, we're not trying to antagonize anything, but I do want to point out one very important aspect of this that it says, I will not hold Old Sac Paranormal Investigations or the Sacramento History Museum responsible for any haunting, supernatural event, soul possession, or poltergeist activity endured before, during, or after participation on this tour. Sounds silly, but you just never know, okay? Should there be some sort of um, incident on the tour, we will be reacting to it as if it were a medical emergency and will um, act in uh, accordingly for that. All right, so on today's tour, we have uh, plenty of devices that you are welcome to carry with you and use um, on the tour. Yep. Um, so let me introduce you to those tools. So these two are what we call an EMF device, electromagnetic field detector. Both of them have a, an array of lights that should show, should light up. Um, if you get the electronic um, EMF reader near any electrical device, like your phone, it will light up. Nope, it's not going to light up on mine. There you go, it lights up on mine. <laughs> so it does light up if you're near anything electrical. But if you're not near anything electrical and it should light up, it could mean that a spirit is making itself present. Okay, this one. These beep, there you go. So that gives us a little bit more um, interest. <laughs> and then this one, so would you like to carry those? There you go, good. If anybody is very handy, this is a dousing rod. A dousing rod or a divining? Divining rod. And so they run on energy, so I am lightly touching the end of it, holding it straight out in front of me. And I can use this to ask questions and a spirit can bring the energy and cross them over for a yes or separate them for a no. Okay, and so we can, if anybody's interested in this kind of energy, you're welcome to carry a divining or dousing rod with you. Susan's wanna carry that. And I'm going to carry a flashlight. And then we have a couple things on our phone. When I'm, I forgot your name. Amanda. Amanda is carrying uh, my phone with this device that allows spirits to communicate through a 20,000 20, word bank. Um, this spans through radio channels, about 100 channels a minute, allowing the spirit to communicate through the device. All right, so Amanda will let us know if that goes off. All right, anything else? Yeah, um, do you want me to do a little intro about where, we're, yes. where we are? Okay. <laughs> So we're standing in the lobby of the Sacramento History Museum. It's probably My from phone. your phone, don't worry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, things just got exciting, you know, everyone. <laughs> 
Um, so the Sacramento History Museum, the building itself is a recreation of the original building that stood on the spot. It looked a lot different though on the inside at the time, but the outside is actually a pretty accurate representation of the city waterworks building that was finished in 1854. And it was built sort of in response to the great conflagration, the great fire that went through Sacramento and there was no centralized water source. And so they needed to make a change to do that. It was a gravity fed system. So when the, <laughs> when the um, building was finished, they had the um, water tank on the top of the building, on the roof of it, and so it was gravity fed. Um, but of course, water is very heavy. And so what ended up happening was that almost immediately this building needed structural repairs and whatnot. So they started sort of renting out and, and giving the space in the um, building itself to other places. And one of those things was the city hall. And this became, um, where they did courts, uh, court sessions. It's where uh, the jail was for part of the time. Um, and it's also where executions were held. So the, those are some stories that we're going to tell you about the place. And one thing too, that's sort of special about doing the, um, the investigation in the museum is that we have both the place and the objects. So there's questions sometimes about, okay, if you're looking for a ghost or a haunting of some sort, are they haunting an object specifically, maybe something they owned, or are they haunting a place somewhere where their spirit has imprinted in some way? And the museum has both of those. So it's kind of a, an interesting place to, I don't know, to go investigate. At this point, we followed Susan and Lisa upstairs to visit the exhibitions of Claire McDonald and Mae Wolsey. We set out the paranormal equipment near Claire McDonald's wedding dress, and Susan began recounting her tragic story to invite her to speak with us. So I'm going to tell you the story of this dress that's here um, and the story of Clara McDonald. So this is Clara McDonald's wedding dress, and we are very lucky because we have a picture of her wearing the dress, and that's pretty rare. I mean, um, the fabric itself does not age well. <laughs> and so the fact that we have um, an entire dress and a picture of her in it is just a really special thing. Um, and when it first was installed in the museum, and we change out the dress every year because, um, like I said, fabric does not age well. Um, so when we first put this one in, I wanted to learn more about Clara just because I was interested. We had her name, we had her dress. I thought it was really cool. And it kind of led me down this year-long rabbit hole <laughs> just learning about her. Um, and she has an incredible story, I think, uh, kind of a tragic story. So Clara McDonald married Joseph McDonald in 1889. Um, and there's a little bit of dispute. I found one record that said they had two children together, but I can only find real evidence of one child. However, in 1890, May 1890 to be precise, there was a, um, a notification or whatever it might be called in the newspaper that said Mrs. Joseph McDonald gave birth to a baby daughter. And so it's, it's tough to say because that's often how names are written. It's not Claire McDonald, it's, it's Mrs. Joseph McDonald and you know how common that name might have been at the time. However, if that is in fact the case, then when they got married in November of 1889, oh, that's 
some interesting math there might explain why they got married. <laughs> so, but um, I don't know, I can't find any other records of them having a daughter together. In 1891, the following year, um, I believe in October or November 1891, um, their son Henry is born. And that I have plenty of information about Henry in 1891 and, and his life. So that we do know, they did have a son together, but then something in the 1890s happened that separated Joseph and Clara. I can't be 100% sure, but I can give you a very educated guess because I have dug very deeply into this. <laughs> that in 1894, there was a news article that a Joseph McDonald of Sacramento was arrested for giving underage girls alcohol and that the courts believed or the judge believed that um, they he was arrested before anything more nefarious could happen so he spent time in prison at that time and we definitely know that clara and henry um, moved back in with her parents and then eventually rented a home of their own in 1895 or 6 joseph mcdonald is arrested again with a group of men for vagrancy and um, sentenced to hard labor in a nearby uh, mine quarry and uh, then he kind of disappears and he doesn't pop up again until the 1900s, early 1900s, when he is in Humboldt County in Eureka. And uh, so he's obviously living a separate life. <laughs> and Clara and Henry are by all means happy. They live in Perkins, which um, if you know in Sacramento, Florin Perkins Road, it's kind of out there, which now it would just be Sacramento. But at the time it was a different um, city, neighborhood, that sort of thing. And uh, in the 1900 census, for example, Claire McDonald is labeled as married, but she is the head of the household and she becomes a teacher and all these great things. Um, but then tragedy strikes in 1910. Henry is at school, he's studying to become a chemist. It was written that he, or he had written that his greatest goal was to take care of his mom financially and to be like her, uh, her person that you know, could she could depend on. And he drowns tragically in 1910 in, uh, in Lake Guadalupe, down kind of closer to the LA area, actually, where he was interning, or I guess apprenticing would probably be a better word for it at the time. And Clara is just obviously devastated. In the obituary, though, there is no mention of Joseph McDonald whatsoever, no mention of a father. It says that he is survived by his mother, by his grandparents, by aunts and uncles nothing about a father either being predeceased or surviving so clearly no relationship there almost a year later joseph mcdonald who is in humboldt county uh, he drowns actually in eureka bay so kind of a spooky coincidence i think that father and son you know drown almost exactly a year to date apart from each other and then Clara outlived them all, and she lived to 1926, still not an old lady, but still. Um, and she is buried next to Henry in East Lawn Cemetery. Clara didn't seem interested in communicating with us, so we moved on to May Woolsey and her chest of personal items. I'd like to introduce you to May Hollister Woolsey. May Woolsey was a young girl who lived here in Sacramento with her father and her mother um, in 1860 to 1879. Now, uh, May Woolsey's father worked for the railroad, so they had a house here in Sacramento. May was an avid writer. She would always keep a journal. Um, she drew pictures. So we knew a lot about her life through her journal. In her journal, May Woolsey writes about a picnic in Davis. And in this, during this picnic, 
She complains about how horrible the mosquitoes are. And of course, about a few weeks later, May Woolsey passes away from encephalitis, we assume because of the, the mosquitoes that caused a swelling of her brain. She was just before her 13th birthday. What does it say? It says worm and those things are getting tired. Yeah, all right. So perhaps May is coming through. So May Woolsey um, dies. Her mother is very distraught, so distraught of the loss of her own, only daughter. She packs all of May Woolsey's items into this very trunk. There's over 100 items in the trunk. We, rep we uh, display a few of them at a time and rotate them through. So if you come back at another time, you may see different items. May Woolsey's mother, over her grief, packed all of her items into this trunk and stashed them under the stairwell of the home, locking them in. She also then went to um, spiritualists, uh, seance readers, trying to communicate with her daughter. And of course, she hoped that her daughter would continue to communicate with her after death. A hundred years later, almost exactly a hundred years, in 1979, this trunk was discovered under the stairs of the very house where May Woolsey lived. The owners of the home realized that the items of this trunk were very valuable or told a wonderful story. So they donated the trunk and all of its items here to the Sacramento Museum. And so sometimes these items, as I said, get switched out. Um, and we believe that perhaps May Woolsey is here with her items, wanting to be here. We also know that May Woolsey is buried at the city cemetery. And it is oftentimes seen that if you leave a trinket or toy at her headstone in the city cemetery, it will disappear. So perhaps May is collecting those items. We did have a um, ghost hunter, an actual ghost hunter, come through and do some readings here. And he believed he contacted May on his EVP recorder. He heard a young girl's voice say, want to play? He also um, found, still worm, yep. He also heard footsteps of a young child running away. Oh, bled. Nice. All right, this box is now saying bled. It did bleed into her brain. Yeah. Yes. So um, he did see, hear a, a young girl uh, saying, want to play, and he heard the footsteps of a young girl running away. So we believe that May Spirit sometimes does come visit her items here at the museum. There was no activity with May Woolsey's artifacts. We then went downstairs to the main lobby and set up our equipment at the wreckage from the steamboat Washu. I know that um, it exploded a little bit south of here on the Sacramento River, the um, steamer Washu, which is pretty actually a common story for steamships on our, on our river right there because the steamships actually tended to try and like race, race each other, <laughs> which then caused a, a lot of um, uh, the, the engines to overheat and explode yeah, and bad things. Yeah, and the Washu exploded a little bit south of here. I know that they took the bodies to the Vernon, um, to the Vernon house and made that sort of a makeshift hospital because there was great loss of life, but awful, all, excuse me, also um, a lot of very hurt people. So they made it a hospital, but also sort of a place to um, so have all those. from San Francisco to Sacramento, hoping that you are going to arrive uh, to the heat of the gold rush. And as you arrive, your captain tells you that you're racing another ship. 
but just south of Sacramento, you know, on your way to your, are you doing that or am I, okay. <clears throat> you hear a shudder and a rumble, and just then the boiler expo explodes, sending men, women, children, and supplies 10 feet into the air, and the boat, of course, is destroyed. Not only were there the loss of life by the damage of the boat, the sinking of the, of the ship, the drowning in the water, but the men, women, and children were all scalded with hot steam as well as burned beyond recognition. As Susan said, the bodies were taken um, here. If we could get them out of the river, were taken to the Brannan House where they were given medical care as best they could. But as you know, anyone with a burn in the 1800s did not have enough care that we could give them. It is also said that some of the bodies were so um, burned beyond recognition that we don't have accurate records of who was on the boat, who lived, and who died. Some two weeks later, bodies were washing up down in Stockton. So this was quite the tragedy. And we have here the hull of this ship, one of the metal sides of this ship that was um, rescued, dredged from the river, and brought here as a remembrance of all the people that died of the explosion of the Washu. After the harrowing story, the equipment suddenly started to light up and flicker, indicating some kind of ghostly presence. All right. And we have... Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> wow. So all the lights are going off all the way up to red. This is unusual for us to get red all the way up. Thank you. When we tried to get more information out of the spirit, things got a little tense. The EMF readers started going off and the words, get out, appeared on the spirit box. Were you on the washu? Oh, oh my god. I'm getting a get out. Okay. Oh. All right. We're going to walk away. Thank you. We'll, we'll leave this artifact. That warning was enough for us. So we moved on to start discussing the executions that had taken place on the very land we were standing on. Lisa and Susan started us out with the story of George Simons. So we are going to leave the EMF reader and the REM pod here in the center of the room. And we're going to go ahead and step back and give the spirits the, the space as we tell you about a man by the name of George Simons. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't remember his name. Uh, in 1860, July of 1860, George Simons um, and his friend, Mr. Crozier, they kind of disappeared, and mysteriously they disappeared at the same time as the Placer uh, Wells Fargo was um, robbed. So needless to say, there was a connection there. We went to search, we, they went to search for um, Mr. Simons and Crozier. What was the detective's name? Officer Nags. Officer Nags was on the case. And Officer Neggs realized the best way to find George Simons was to follow his wife. So he followed Mrs. Simons from Placer through Sacramento, heading south towards Stockton. Just before Stockton, Neggs found Roser, sorry, Crozier, <laughs> and Simons just north of Stockton. Now, these two men were found with four horses. Why would two men have four horses? 
bags of bloody clothes and a plate with the name of B.F. Reynolds. Russell, yes. So needless to say, Mr. Neggs immediately arrested uh, Mr. Simons. He brought him to jail in Stockton. Now, things came to pass. They didn't have a lot of evidence. They didn't know who Russell was or how the evidence came to be. But about that time, Crozier escapes from jail. Simon says, I'm going to make a deal, and I'm going to tell them what happened, and I'll get a lesser plea. But just at that time, before he's able to make that deal, two bodies are found in the river right near where these men were found near Stockton. I come to find out the body is of Mr. B.F. Russell. So now that Crozier is gone, Simons is the only one to take the heat. So Simons is brought to Sacramento to stand trial for murder. The entire time he claims, I am innocent, I did not do this, I did not kill these people, or it's not me. He goes through a lengthy trial, he is convicted of murder. Again, he's the only one to stand trial. He tries a lengthy appeal, but unfortunately, on October 4th, again, almost exactly the day we have today, this month, October 4th, 1863, yes, 1863, George Simons is brought to this very lobby. Up at the ceiling, up here, this very building, this very spot on the second floor, there is a wooden platform where Mr. Simons is taken out to the wooden platform, a noose wrapped around his neck, again claiming his innocence. He is hung to his death in this very spot. Now, interestingly, right before his hanging, he, of course, is able to see a priest. He does not pray for himself. What he does is pray for his wife. And not just that she will be happy and healthy. He prays that she will get back onto a righteous path. And we don't know what that meant until a little while later where the story continues after his death. So as George Simons was sitting in jail, his wife would visit him. And it turns out that while she was visiting him, she was taunting him because she had fallen in love with the very officer, Officer Nags, that had originally arrested George Simons and Monroe Crozier. And so he was the officer that had been kind of following her in order to find them, which worked. And I guess they, they fell in love in that time. And they were living together in Sacramento all while uh, George Simon was in prison here. And um, after he is executed, they get married about two weeks, actually, two or three weeks after he is executed. Jane Simons and Officer Neggs get married and they live here in Sacramento for a little bit of time. Now, by all accounts, Officer Neggs was a man of the law and he was a well-respected officer. Uh, until he suddenly wasn't. And he started um, doing things that were more in line with the people that he <laughs> should be uh, investigating. And he is arrested, arrested by Chief Burke. 
and uh, he's arrested for a charge I'm not I'm still unclear of some of the charges from back then um, are, I'm not familiar with but it was moving earth from a spot in in Sacramento and he is arrested for this maybe he didn't own that area I'm, I'm really not sure what that all meant and um, he is sentenced to 50 days in prison and as he is in prison his wife Jane leaves him for another man and when he gets out he's obviously enraged but his rage is sort of targeted at the man who arrested him chief burke he says it's not me who is corrupt it's chief burke i didn't do these things i was framed and he says i'm going to kill chief burke and he kind of told that to a few people who testified later and he borrows a gun from somebody actually who owned a saloon here in what we know as old sacramento and he used that gun and he went looking for Chief Burke and they actually lived a, a little bit out of the uh, city at that point. But he does not find him. Instead, who he finds is his wife, who is sitting on the porch of her new lover's uh, house. And he uses the gun on her and he shoots her. And he, she ends up dying from her wounds later that night. And then he turns the gun on himself and he shoots himself. So it sort of ends in a tragic murder-suicide. Um, now, perhaps you're remembering the man who, um, who escaped prison, Monroe Crozier, who was the accomplice to George Simons. He is, in fact, found a little bit later. So unfortunately, the tragedy that happens with Officer Nags and Jane happens in 1864. So George Simons is, is um, executed in 1863. They die in 1864. Monroe Crozier is found in 1865. And he's been living in Santa Cruz and working on a potato farm under the name John Johnson. Totally real name, not made up at all, John Johnson. And um, he is arrested, brought to Sacramento, and he confesses to the entire crime. And it should probably be noted that George Simons never confessed to the crime, so much so that the sheriff at the time met with him the night before his execution and said, you make, you're making me feel like I'm going to become a murderer by killing you. And, uh, and Simons, you know, comforts the sheriff allegedly and says, no, you're doing your duty. And yeah, well, Monroe Crozier's story is a little different. He says, yes, we did it, but Simons planned the whole thing. He made me help him. We came along these two gentlemen while we were on our way to the mines. They were, had been working in the quarries in the mines and um, we decided to camp together for safety. And in the night, Simons came to me and said, we should kill them and steal their money because they must have a lot of money. And I said, no, no, I couldn't possibly. And I went back to bed. But a little while later, the horses get rest, restless. So I got up and I went to comfort the horses. And while I'm comforting the horses, I hear gunshots and I know that he has done the deed. So he returns to camp and George Simons allegedly turns the gun on Monroe Crozier and says, you're going to help me clean up this mess or I'm going to kill you. And so what is a man to do? What should Monroe Crozier do? <laughs> so of course he helps him and somehow gets money out of it, is found with quite a bit of cash on his person when he is arrested the very next day. And that's his story. He pleads guilty and he gets 10 years in prison 10 years and seven years or almost eight years into his sentence he was staying in san quentin the governor at the time governor newton booth who i believe was our 11th governor newton booth um, gives him a full pardon 
So for the same crime that one man was executed for, another man is given a full pardon of the crime. And by all means, it looks like Monroe Crozier got out of jail a week later, and we never really hear from him again. So that's the interesting story of George Simons. Suddenly, there was more and more activity happening on the equipment. Susan and Lisa decided to try and figure out who was in the space with us. We never expected what happened next. Who is speaking to us right now? Do you want to put your name on our device over here? Looks like you do. Do you want me to guess your name? Is it Lewis? Is it George? George? Just, just angry now, now yeah. yeah. You can't really get it to answer until it stops. Jeez. Oh it wasn't doing anything while we were telling our story. Oh, oh what does it say? Charles. Charles. <gasps> so, a story we didn't tell is that of Charles Mortimer. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Wow. Oh my gosh, so Charles it's going really crazy. The name Charles Mortimer just came. We'll be calm. We can talk about this calmly. Did it say calm? <laughs> yes, it did. I can be calm when I talk about Charles Mortimer. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> it's, and now it's gone. Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, Charles, that we had the wrong people we were talking about. <laughs> So Charles Mortimer, um, okay, so Charles Mortimer was a, uh, just not a great person all around. <laughs> he, um, in, gosh, what was the year, 1872, yes. In September, 1872, I don't have my notes here, um, not far from here on Jaboom Street, so like a block that way, um, I, a woman is found, Mary Shaw Gibson is found and she's been brutally murdered. Um, but it looked like she had put up a fight. It looked like she had really fought for her life. And she had a chunk of hair gripped in her fist that looked like beard hair. It was reddish brown. Um, it was in her home, which was also her saloon. She owned a, She was the proprietress of a, of a saloon, but it was also where she lived. And um, ripped, her pocket had been ripped from her and they think that some money had been taken. There was a um, glass near her that had beer in it and that they tested it and it actually had strychnine in it. So they think somebody had tried to poison her and maybe try and get the money and it was something gone wrong, right? Um, so meanwhile, this lady is found about 7 p.m. Mary Shaw Gibson is found about 7 p.m. And uh, because somebody had come to her saloon and couldn't find her and so then they investigated further and found, found her in her room. And meanwhile, while that's happening, another officer is actually here, not too far from where we are standing in Old Sacramento, and comes across Charles Mortimer. And Charles Mortimer is looking a bit of a mess. His clothes are torn. He has blood on his face. Um, he uh, has a chunk of his beard missing. And it's very, very odd, very interesting. And uh, this officer doesn't know yet about what had happened with Mary Gibson and says, are you okay? And I'm going to walk you home essentially. And Charles Mortimer says, no, I am fine. I was jumped, but I'm okay. So the officer walks him home to the mechanics exchange building, which is right across the street from the railroad museum. 
and encounters his uh, partner, Carrie Spencer. Some things have her as Carrie Mortimer. I don't think they got married, though. I'm not sure. And, um, and then the officer leaves, and after he leaves, he finds out about this terrible murder that has just happened, and he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I just saw somebody who looked like um, something terrible had happened. So he went back to get Mortimer, but he's gone. And um, his wife or partner is there, Carrie, so he arrests her. And as they are going to the jail, they actually run into Mortimer, but he's gone and he's gotten shaved. And there's pictures actually, like his mugshot where he's shaven, and then a picture of him with his beard. And like the beard is quite long. He lived with a beard, you know, he was a man that had a beard, and that's what everybody kind of recognized him as. So him getting shaved was very suspicious. Uh, and eventually it would be one of the first um, cases using that as photographic evidence, actually. So that's kind of interesting. <laughs> so the, he gets arrested. They're in jail. Carrie very much to save her own self there um, because she was seen at the saloon where Mary Gibson was uh, with Mortimer. Um, she gives testimony against him. And of course, he is found guilty and he is sentenced to be executed. And um, that's where it gets a little iffy about the city hall and where he was executed. It said that he was executed in the... Um, the yard. I'm not sure if that is here still at that time. I need to do a little bit further research if it was here, but it certainly wasn't in the building, but he stayed here in the jail and inmates even afterwards for years actually said that his jail cell was very haunted, that it was Mortimer's jail cell and that his spirit walked the halls. So the sp space might be haunted by Charles Mortimer. In fact, it kind of seemed like he was trying to talk to us tonight, so that's very interesting. And um, so before, though, he is executed, he is sitting in jail, and um, it's about 1.30 in the morning, and somebody knocks on the jail, which is like not something that you should do at 1.30 in the morning out of jail. And so the deputy goes out to investigate. He is very, very cautious, and he goes out and he encounters a man who looks strange. He's not wearing a hat, he's not wearing shoes. He's wearing a coat that is inside out. He has a mask on, and worst of all, he's got a pistol pointed at the deputy. So what does the deputy do? It's 1.30 in the morning, he's guarding the jail. He pulls out his pistol and he shoots the man. But they didn't know who this was, right? So he, he dies, and they check, and his name is William Flynn, and they're not sure, sure who that is. So they checked like, his pockets, and he had some identification on him. And um, they bring Charles actually to try and identify the body because they think it might have something to do with him because he was about to be executed. And it turns out that Charles Mortimer's real name is Charles Flynn. And this was his brother that had come all the way from Vermont to try and save him from execution. But it also turns out that they haven't seen each other in 16 years. And that William is by all accounts a very young man. He's like 23 years old. And so, but Charles had been sent pictures and recognized him from the photographs. But I just find that really interesting that this, um, I don't know, this brother tries to save his brother and he hasn't seen him in 16 years. But then accounts kind of differ on exactly what happened. If you ask Mortimer, he goes insane, right? He is grief stricken and just, oh my gosh. I, I can't believe my brother has died. He has tried to save me. I'm just, he is just completely out of his mind with grief. And he cuts off a lock of his brother's hair and he's in the cell and he's talking to it and he's caressing it. And he's talking to it as if it is his brother. Now, if you ask the sheriff or the deputies, he's just putting on a show, 
right? He wants people to think he's insane, so he isn't hanged for the murder. But if you ask Mortimer, of course, he is insane. It doesn't work either way. Um, he is, in fact, executed for <laughs> murdering Mary Shaw. Um, I should mention, too, that it comes out during the testimony of Carrie Spencer or Mortimer, the, the wife or partner, that uh, they had killed another woman, um, Purnell, Caroline Purnell. This was in San Francisco, and it was in May of the same year, I believe, 1872. And um, it comes out before that. This, like, people don't just start murdering usually. There's usually like things that lead up to it. And in Mortimer's case, that is absolutely accurate. He was known for robberies. He was known for assaults. He um, uh, apparently had a, a, quite a track record of this. But he's able to convince this cop or this policeman at one point that he's reformed. And he says, not only am I reformed, I'll show you where I have... Um, you are guilty. You are guilty, oh, Mortimer. Are guilty. I am sorry, oh, Mortimer. You are great. guilty. Yeah, you're not insane. Right? You're guilty. And um, he brings this officer out where he says that he's buried loot. He feels so bad about it. I'm totally reformed. And as the officer is like looking where he says that he's buried the loot, he like hits the officer over the head, steals his gun, beats him to within an inch of his life. In fact, articles at the time said that, that the officer had the died. The yeah, they are. The lights are on the EMF reader are going off again. And now it's quiet. But actually, the officer survived. Um, but he's arrested a few months later for this, and he spends seven years in jail, I believe at San Quentin. That's the, kind of the nearest one for these big crimes. Interesting, the EMF reader is going really crazy right now. I think it was Officer Harris. I like to get names right because I think it matters in these kind of stories that we don't just say officer. It is like Officer Harris because he had a name and he went through this. And um, so he spent seven years in San Quentin, and you know when he was released, George Charles Mortimer? Early 1872, and he kills Caroline Purnell in May, and then he kills Mary Gibson in September. Yeah. He's buried at um, City Cemetery. <laughs> Often with cases like that, he's actually married or buried near his brother, and, and you can find that um, record. But in cases like that, um, they're kind of unmarked. Often, like Lewis Call is allegedly buried there too, who killed Catherine Gherkin. I can find Catherine's grave there, but um, often the nastier people of society are kind of left in an unknown or a unmarked grave. So. Charles Mortimer, another haunting. That's, that was crazy. That blew my mind. So now you've heard all about our experience with the Old Sacramento Paranormal Investigation. I personally was very surprised by everything that we experienced. Um, I didn't expect this much paranormal activity to be happening. I was very surprised by uh, the steamboat accident get out message and when the machine came up with the name Charles and there had actually been an execution of a man named Charles on that land, that is going to stick with me for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I like like you, Amanda, I came in, you know, sort of skeptical. I didn't expect to see much. Um, but it, it generally gave me uh, goosebumps when I saw the name Charles pop up. And then there were so many just different words that would pop up and it uh, at the perfect time to respond to what Susan and um, 
and uh, Lisa were saying that it just it feels hard to just explain it away as a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's my biggest takeaway. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was a really fun experience. Like, I yeah, again, I'm a big skeptic. This isn't like, oh, the ghosts. Um, I mean, but it was really, I, I didn't come away believing more in the ghosts, but what we saw was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, like, overall, I would go ghost hunting again. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm looking forward now to Now I it. definitely want to do it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gotta get those EMF machines oh, going. Def- yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's exciting when you catch something, you're like, ooh, yeah. what's that? Like, and you yeah. follow it, like, yeah. you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably wouldn't, you know, try to doing it at, like, my house or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, not agree. That would be too much, but, yeah, somewhere else. Somewhere I don't have to go all the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us for such a bone-chilling special episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk. We want to thank Lisa Praxel and Susan Voskul-Starsevich of the Sacramento History Museum for bringing us along on a frightening and incredibly well-researched paranormal investigation. If you're interested in learning more, please check out the Sacramento History Museum, which is located directly next to the California State Railroad Museum, or at their website at sachistorymuseum.org. That link can be found in the description of this episode.